0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we'll cover the latest news around Serie A, Napoli, and Europe. In part two, we'll recap round 35 of Serie A, In part 3, we'll review Napoli's loss to Parma on Wednesday. And in part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Sassuolo on Saturday. So let's start with the news. According to Corriera dello Sport, everyone's favorite minister Vincenzo Spadafora has submitted a proposal to the Council of Ministers to create a Department of Sport. The 124-page document will be reviewed by the council and a decision will be made by November 8th. The department would oversee all sports, but I'll focus on the football side of things. The department would supervise the Italian National Olympic Committee, CONI, and the Italian Football Federation, FIGC. Those two groups in particular tend not to see eye to eye, which we saw with the restart. CONI president Giovanni Malago was really pushing to cancel the season, while FIGC president Gabriele Garavina obviously wanted a restart. I don't think this department would change much in that regard as that decision was ultimately made by Spadafora anyways. Moving on, I said I would provide an update on the meeting on Monday that Aurelio De Laurentiis hosted with the 19 other presidents regarding broadcasting rights. There's not much to report after that meeting. It sounds like both options, either selling the rights to more parties or selling up to 15% of a newly created Serie a media company to third-party investors, are both still on the table. The only update I do have is the deadline for third parties to submit their bids has been extended to Monday, and then there will be a Lega Council meeting on Thursday to discuss. Moving on to Napoli, there's not much to report there, so I'll do a bit of a rapid fire on transfer rumors. Victor Oseman is inching closer to an official announcement. In fact, by the time you hear this, it could already be official. The latest reports are that Napoli paid 60 million plus bonuses that could increase the price tag to 80 million euros. And that his contract will be for 5 years at 4 million euros per year. The next target is Jeremy Boga. Napoli are reportedly offering 25 million euros and Amin Yunus for Boga. Sassuolo value Boga at 40 million euros, which means Napoli value Amin at 15, and Sassuolo disagree with that valuation. Napoli continue to negotiate with Roma for Chenzig Under, who has apparently promised himself to the Azzurri. There is tension between the clubs as a result of the complaint Napoli filed against Roma for violating Covid protocol in their last match. Roma are reportedly looking to get 30 million euros for Under but Napoli value him at only 22 million and after losing the swap between Manolas and Diawara and given Roma's current financial situation, the Giallorossi only want cash. According to Tutosport, Napoli have rejected a 65 million euro offer from Manchester City for Kalidou Koulibaly, which is borderline insulting. According to Corriere dello Sport, Napoli are also interested in Torino fullback Ola Aina. And according to our friend Eddie, Napoli are interested in CSKA Moscow's Nikola Vlasic. Eddie asked for our thoughts on this. I haven't seen this rumor in any of the sites that I use, but Eddie digs pretty deep when it comes to transfer rumors. I don't know much about Vlasic other than that he's a young attacking midfielder who had a short spell with Everton. Because we already have Fabian and Zielinski, who I personally don't think are going anywhere anytime soon and that we just spent 15 million euros on Elmas last summer, I don't think this position is a priority and therefore I don't expect this transfer to happen. Finally, with Parma's win over Napoli, they've guaranteed their safety, which means they have an obligation to redeem Roberto Inglese for 20 million euros, Alberto Grassi for 7 million euros, and Luigi Seppe for 5 million euros for a total of 32 million euros. Moving on to Europe, UEFA has announced the dates for next season's Europa League. Also, because of the delay to this season's Europa League, the qualifying rounds for next season will be played in single-leg ties as opposed to the usual home and away fixtures, and the venues will be determined by draw. So here are the dates. The preliminary round will be played on August 20th. The first qualifying round will be played on August 27th. The second qualifying round, which will include either Milan or Roma, whichever one finishes lower, will be played on September 17th. The third qualifying round will be played on September 24th. And the qualifying playoff will be on October 1st. The group stage will be played over 6 match days on October 22nd and 29th, November 5th and 26th, and December 3rd and 10th. That'll do for the news. In part 2, we'll recap the latest action in Italian football. Okay, so next let's cover the latest action in Italian football, starting with Serie A. And I'm not going to start with Juventus, I'm going to start with Inter first, who played against Fiorentina on Wednesday under heavy rain in Milano. Despite Inter dominating the match and having chance after chance, this one finished nil-nil. Fiorentina keeper Pietro Terracciano was easily the man of the match. He went head-to-head with Romelu Lukaku in this match, and he won. Inter came close to scoring in the fifth minute off a Christian Eriksen free kick. Caceres deflected the ball off his teammate Venuti and straight at their own goal but Terraciano did well to keep it out. Then he did even better to stop Lukaku on the rebound. In the 11th minute he intercepted Candreva's cross and then made an excellent save on Barella's shot from the top of the box. Lukaku nearly scored in the 18th minute but he glanced his header off the upright and out. Terraciano made another great save on Lukaku in the 34th minute from point blank range. Inter did find the back of the goal in the 50th minute, but Antonio Candreva was clearly in an offside position, so that goal did not count. Terraciano foiled Alexis Sanchez as well in the 52nd minute. He got a piece of Sanchez's shot, which then deflected off the upright and stayed out. Fiorentina didn't get many chances in this match, but when they did, they were really good ones. Their first chance wasn't until the 57th minute when Castrovilli took a shot from around the penalty spot. He hit it well, but it was straight at Handanovic who made the save. Fiorentina came close again on the counterattack in the 79th minute but Handanovic made a really important save on Polirola from only a few feet away. At the end of the match both sides probably felt like they could have walked away with 3 points. Lautaro came on in the final 20 minutes of the match but once again he was really poor. At this point Inter is probably better off keeping him for another season or at least half a season to get his form back on track before trying again to sell him to Barcelona in January. Not only did Inter fail to collect the three points, Stefan De Vry left this match in the first half with a knee injury. So, with Inter drawing, Juventus had the opportunity to win the Scudetto on Thursday against Udinese. It was actually Udinese that nearly scored first. Ken Sema played a dangerous ball into the box. Danilo attempted to head the ball clear but didn't get enough on it and it hit the upright. Udinese returned the favor in the 13th minute. Noitink passed back to Musso, who had to stretch just to get a toe on the ball to tip it wide of the goal. Dybala nearly scored on the ensuing corner, but Musso did really well to get across to make the save. Ronaldo nearly got on the board in the 26th minute with a hard dipping shot from the top of the box that just narrowly missed the goal. Matthias Delict, of all people, opened the scoring just before the break with a low hard strike to the bottom corner. Remarkably, Udinese equalized in the 52nd minute. Sema again played a beautiful cross into the box and Ilya Nestorovsky's powerful diving header beat Shisesny. Sema was really good in this match, especially crossing the ball in. What no one saw coming was Udinese going ahead in added time. Rodrigo Becao intercepted Daniela Rugani's pass before crashing into Nestorovsky. One of my favorite Udinese players, Seko Fofana, ran onto the ball, out-muscled Alexandro, nutmegged Matthias De and finished past Secesny to put Udinese ahead 2-1, which is how this one ended. Full credit to Udinese, they took it to Juventus all-match. Throughout the match, you heard the commentators complimenting their positive play. I don't know how to feel about this match, to be honest. On one hand, it makes me feel a bit better about Napoli struggling to beat Udinese. But on the other hand, I can't help but think that if there was ever a season to win the Scudetto, this was the one with how Juventus have been playing, and Napoli threw that opportunity away in the first half of the season. A quick comment on Matthias Delikt, who got a lot of flack after the match for his defending on Fofana. I think it's ridiculous that people are jumping on him. Every defender in the history of the sport has had moments like this. That does not mean he's not a quality defender. If he stays healthy, which there may be a little bit of doubt because of his shoulder problem, though I think that can be surgically repaired, then he will be a world-class defender if he isn't already, and in all likelihood he will succeed Cellini as Juve's top center back. He's only 20 years old, but all the top Juventus experts talk about how he has the maturity of a seasoned veteran. So mathematically, the Scudetto is still up for grabs. Meanwhile, Lazio needed at least a draw against Cagliari to secure their place in the Champions League. João Pedro should have opened the scoring in the opening minutes with a beautifully struck free kick. Unfortunately, he didn't realize it was an indirect free kick, so the goal was disallowed. Cagliari's keeper Alessio Cragno was outstanding in this match, especially in the opening 20 minutes. In the 9th minute, he made a solid save on Manuel Lazzari coming from the wing. In the 10th minute, Cranio made another excellent save on a Lazzari volley. In the 15th minute, he stopped Luis Alberto's bending shot from outside the box. And in the 18th minute, he made a ridiculous reaction save on Chiro Immobile's volley. Lazio faded for the balance of the half and Cagliari grew into the match. Giovanni Simeone nearly scored in the 41st minute, but his free header from point-blank range missed the goal. Simeone made up for it moments later. His shot from the top of the box took a deflection off Luis Felipe and beat Thomas Strakosha, who had started leaning the other way. This was horrible defending from Lazio. You're also beginning to see how the refereeing is changing the way players defend. Felipe was defending with his arms behind his back, which may have thrown off his balance while trying to block the shot. Lazio responded after the break with a classic Sergei Milinkovic-Savage goal. His volley from the top of the box was always bending away from Caragno and into the top corner. Cranio's excellent play continued in the second half. He made an important save on Luis Alberto's low shot in the 53rd minute. Moments later, he made another incredible reaction save on Chiro Immobile, pushing the ball off the upright and out. He did get the feeling though that Immobile would eventually get his goal, and he did in the 60th minute. He didn't connect fully with the left foot, but his shot was accurate enough to beat Cranio. That was Immobile's 31st of the season to move him back into the lead for Capo over Cristiano Ronaldo who didn't score this round. This one ended 2 to 1 for Lazio. This was the type of performance we used to see from Lazio before the break, complete with a come from behind victory. It's amazing what a difference a day off made for Luis Alberto. He was excellent. With the win, Lazio have secured their place in the Champions League, though in my opinion it was never really in doubt. So that's the Scudetto race in the Champions League. Let's move on to the Europa League battle. Milan took on Sassuolo on Tuesday in a really important match in the race for Europa League qualification. Gianluigi Donnarumma was playing in his 200th match for Milan which according to the broadcast he achieved one year quicker than club legend and current technical director Paolo Maldini. Milan opened the scoring in the 19th minute after Federico Peluso passed the ball straight to Frank Kessie. A few passes later Benacer picked out Ibrahimović's run into the box and the big Swede headed in his 6th of the season. Sassuolo nearly equalized in the 38th minute after Chalonoglu's clearance narrowly missed his own goal. On the replay though, you could see that he headed the ball down into his own arm. VAR reviewed the play and indeed confirmed Chalonoglu handled the ball, so the penalty was given. Chicho Caputo took the penalty and opted to go with power over accuracy to beat Donnarumma. That was his fourth goal in his last four matches and his 20th on the season. Between injuries and the water break, there were seven minutes of added time. In the second minute of added time, Chalonoglu played a perfectly weighted through ball to Ibrahimović, who had timed his run perfectly as well. He used his first touch to get around Koncili and then calmly placed his shot into the empty goal. In the 6th minute of added time, Burabia picked up a second yellow with a pretty reckless challenge. I do think he was sliding for the ball, but all he got was Ante Rebic who beat Burabia to the ball. Nonetheless, this was a really irresponsible tackle that was almost identical to the tackle he made on Ibrahimovic to earn his first yellow. So Sassuolo were forced to play the entire second half down a man. I honestly felt like Burabia cost Sassuolo any chance of competing in this match. Jeremy Boga who had come in after the break was surprisingly replaced by Filip Juric in the 68th minute and Boga did not appear to be injured. After the match the Zerbi told Sky that players who don't have the desire to play will see the bench. He didn't name any names but I'm pretty sure he was talking about Boga. Milan nearly put the match away in the 81st minute but Consili made an incredible triple save first on Kessia and then twice on Bonaventura to keep Sassuolo in the match. But Sassuolo really struggled to create anything in the second half being down a man. Milan went on to win the match, but it was not without sacrifices, both Andrea Conti and Alessio Romagnoli left this match with injuries, and Teo Hernandez picked up his 5th yellow card, so Milan will have a fairly depleted squad for their next match against Atalanta. With the win, and with Napoli losing to Parma, Milan are now in sole possession of 6th place, 2 points back of Roma. We'll cover Napoli's loss in more detail in Part 3. For Sassuolo, that loss puts them 11 points back of Milan, so their hopes of qualifying for the Europa League are all but lost. Milan and Roma will now battle to see who goes straight to the group stage versus who plays in the qualification round. Speaking of Roma, they showed the already relegated spell no mercy in their match. Spell keeper Carlo Letizia had a forgettable performance. Roma opened the scoring in the 10th minute. Nikola Kalinic poked the ball in after Letizia spilled the ball and Pellegrini shot. For a minute, it looked like this might actually be a competitive match. Alberto Cerri equalized in the 24th minute. Valdifiori's cross was spot on and Chetty did really well to win the aerial duel with Kolarov and head past Paulo Lopez. Carlos Perez put Roma back in front in the 38th minute with a left-footed strike to the back post. Shortly after the break, Letitza messed up again. Kolarov fired a rocket from about 40 yards out that Letitza saw and got a hand on it but couldn't keep it out. And at this level, that's a save you really need to make. Andrea Petania nearly scored in the 69th minute. Paulo Lopez got caught out, so Pitana only had to beat the Roma defenders, but Smalling cleared the ball off the line. Bruno Perez got his second in the 75th minute with a gorgeous strike from the corner of the box that bent into the corner of the goal. Nicolo Zaniolo ended the match with what was easily the goal of the round and probably a candidate for goal of the season. He retrieved the ball on his own end, outran about 5 spell defenders, and then finished off the bar and in. Credit to match official Gianluca Manganiello for blowing the final whistle right at the 90-minute mark. So Roma remain in 5th place, 2 points ahead of Milan. The other battle to keep an eye on is the relegation battle between Genoa and Lecce. Genoa played Sampdoria in the Derby della Lanterna. Genoa were playing without a number of key players. Sumauro, Sturaro, Sanabria, Berami, and Casata were all out for this one. Yet it was Genoa that opened the scoring in the 22nd minute. Iago Falque picked out Philippe Iaguelo's diagonal run. Iaguelo touched on and Pandev got to the ball just before Omar Kali attempted his clearance. So instead of kicking the ball, Kali kicked Pandev. Domenico Crisito stepped up and smashed his shot into the goal to give Genoa the lead. Sampdoria equalized in the 32nd minute, Linetti's shot was blocked but the ball went straight into the path of Manolo Gabbidini, who put his half volley past Mattia Perin. That's the 2nd goal he scored in the Derby this season. Genoa thought they took the lead in added time but VAR reviewed the play and determined that Christian Romero was offside by a hair so the goal was ruled off. Genoa went back ahead in the 72nd minute, Jagiello muscled Berzinski off the ball in Sampdoria's end before he spotted Leraguer at the top of the box and he fired to the bottom corner past Aldero. Gaston Ramirez nearly equalized late in the match. He played a quick 1-2 with Qualiarella before getting a hard shot off, but that shot lacked accuracy and Pedin made the save. That was Sampdoria's last chance of the match, which ended 2-1 for Genoa. Besides the goals, this wasn't the most entertaining of matches. The loss ended Sampdoria's three-game winning streak, and this was Genoa's first win in the derby in four years, and it couldn't have come at a much better time. While Genoa were playing Sampdoria, Lecce were playing Brescia. This was a must-win for Lecce in their fight for survival. Marco Mancosu had a glorious opportunity in the 12th minute. The build-up to this chance was excellent. Lecce completed 14 passes all over the pitch that ended up with a lovely little interplay between Saponara, Lapadula, and Mancosu. Mancosu didn't get much power on the shot from point-blank range, and Jesse Yoronen made the save. Lapadula opened the scoring in the 22nd minute from a set-piece. Filippo Falpo's left-footed, outswinging cross from the left side of the box was perfectly placed for Lapidula to head home. Moments later, Brescia nearly equalized but Gabriel made a nice save on Yarmir Zemeral that proved to be an important save. Only moments later, Lapidula doubled Lecce's lead on the counterattack. Jornin came out to collect the loose ball but was only able to push it towards Lapidula who smashed it into the back of the goal. Brescia nearly got lucky in the 60th minute. Tonelli played a high cross into the area. Gabriel came out for the catch and nearly fumbled it into the back of his own goal. Gabriel reacted quickly enough to recover the ball on the line and the goal line technology confirmed that the ball in fact did not cross the line. Brescia got their goal moments later though after some sloppy Lecce defending from the corner kick. the Senna shot through traffic so Gabriel saw it late. He did manage to get a hand on the ball but not enough to keep it out. Brescia were actually the better side at the start of the second half as they hung on to any little hope left of surviving but it was Lecce who would score next. The Senna's pass at midfield was intercepted by Taxidis, who started the counterattack. He picked out Ricardo Saponara on the wing, who cut in and fired past Joranen. Brescia were deflated after that goal. Lecce had a few more opportunities stopped by Joranen, but it didn't matter. With the 3-1 victory, Lecce remained 4 points back of Genoa with 3 matches to play. Things could really get interesting the next round as Genoa have a tough match against Inter, while Lecce have a somewhat easier match against Bologna. For Brescia, this match ultimately didn't matter. Even if Brescia won, the Genoa win was enough to guarantee Brescia's relegation to Serie B. Moving on, Atalanta took on Bologna. Atalanta started this match a bit slowly, Orsolini nearly opened the scoring in the 9th minute with a hard shot from distance, but Golini got across to make an excellent save. Then in the 20th minute, Musabero had an excellent effort go just wide of the goal, Atalanta didn't get their first chance of the half until the 29th minute on a shot by Mario Pazilic that took a slight deflection off Danilo, but Skorupski did well to adjust and make the save. The real story of the match came in the 35th minute. Things got pretty heated on the sidelines after Andreas Skovolsen was fouled by Robin Gozins. After the foul, Giampiero Gasperini apparently said something to the Bologna bench that really set Mihailovic off. Both managers were shown yellow cards. Gasparini asked match official Federico Lapenna what he thinks he is doing. After hearing that, Mihailovic asked Lapenna to throw Gasparini out, and his request was granted as Lapenna showed Gasparini a second yellow. After the match, Mihailovic talked about how, in your own home, you set the rules. He said he does not talk to the opposition players, so they should not talk to his. Gasparini didn't want to comment on the incident, which, according to Mihailovic, was because Gasparini knew he was wrong. Musabero came close again in the 39th minute, when his free kick rocked the bar. Atalanta brought in Luis Muriel at the half, and he had an immediate impact. Muriel scored the only goal of the match, beating Skorupski in the 62nd minute. Atalanta went on to win, but since the Juventus match, they've seemed a bit off, which could be because the match effectively ended their hopes of winning the Scudetto. Against Verona, they didn't look like the side we've come to know and love, and they struggled in this match as well, which is really making me doubt whether they can actually compete with PSG in the Champions League. They'll need to be the best version of themselves, which is not what I saw in this match. Rounding out the week, Torino drew Verona 1-1. Torino are technically still at risk of relegation as they're 6 points clear of Lecce with 9 points up for grabs, but they play Spal next round, so that should do it for them. In the lower divisions, round 36 of SETI B was played on Friday afternoon Eastern Time. We're recording this on Friday morning, so we'll recap round 36 next episode. And in SETI Chi, the final of the promotion playoff was played on Wednesday, Reggiana beat Bari 1-0, so they will join Monza, Vicenza, and Regina in Serie B. Unfortunately for Aurelio De Laurentiis, his Bari side will remain in Serie C. That'll do it for Part 2. In Part 3, we'll review Napoli's loss to Parma. So let's review Napoli's loss to Parma. We are just about ready to get
1: underway. It is Parma to kick us off. Two team for the Napoli defence. They got away with it, but Siligardi still has it and he's gone round Rui, And he's found Grassi inside. And Grassi goes down. That's a penalty. Late in the first half. Caprari against Meret. Lines the back of the net. Palmer have the lead. It is the last kick of the first half. And onto this lead. 45 minutes for Napoli to find a way to improve and to find a way back into the game. And Alan found a pocket of space and rolled back. And that's a handball right on the edge of the box, I believe. And that opacity. Oh, the video assistant referees, it will be a penalty. Insigne to bring Napoli level. Calm, cool, composed. He hits the equaliser. Napoli a level. And look at Kulosevsky He's got away from Koulibaly. He's gone to ground. That's a penalty. The third penalty of the game. The second to Parma. And the second Palmer penalty, the first was converted and Kulosevsky rolls it into to the bottom corner. And Palmer with less than five minutes to go, lead Napoli. Mario Rui is the time for one last attack, he goes long looking for Insigne.
0: It's all over at the Tardini. So, as you heard, this one finished 2 1 for Parma. So, as we always do, we'll start with the lineups, but I won't speak too much about the individual performances of Napoli's players as I usually do. Instead, I'll focus on some of the key themes of the match. Let's start with Parma's squad. Other than Luigi Seppe, Roberto Daverso overhauled his starting 11 for this match. Daverso was probably looking to shake things up, having collected only one point in seven matches. Bruno Alves returned from injury, so he started in the middle next to Catrio Dermacu. Giuseppe Petzella started at left back and Matteo Darmian started over Vincent Laurini at right back. I thought Petzella had a very good match. In the midfield, Bersa went back to Yasmin Kurtic on the left side, Gaston Brugman started in the middle, and Alberto Grassi started over Hernani on the right. Grassi, who is currently on loan from Napoli but has never actually played for them, also had a good match. Up top, Gervinho and Kulusevsky both started on the bench. Jan Carmo and Luca Siligardi started in their places. Siligardi was also very involved in this match and Gianluca Caprari started at striker. Gattuso made 7 changes to the squad that started against Udinese, but his starting 11 was pretty close to what we expected. Alex Meret started in goal over Davido Spina. Meret had next to nothing to do in this match. Other than the penalties, Parma only had 1 shot on goal and 2 shots at goal. Mario Rui started again at left back. Giovanni Di Lorenzo returned at right back. Di Lorenzo was one of the few Napoli players I thought had a decent match. He did well to clear the ball off the line in the 30th minute on a Parma counterattack. He also had a decent effort in the 32nd minute. It was low and hard and through traffic, but Zepe made the save. And he nearly scored in the 85th minute as well. In the middle, Nikola Maksimovic started over Kostas Manolas to play alongside Kaladu Koulibaly. Koulibaly is another player I thought had a good match. In the midfield, Diego Demis started over Stanislav Lobotka in the Regista spot. Alan was the one change to the squad that was a bit of a surprise. He gave Zielinski a rest. Alan really struggled with his passing in this match. He didn't seem to be on the same page with his teammates. Fabian completed the midfield. Fabian also had a pretty decent performance. He had a few opportunities, but was unable to hit the target. Up top, Lorenzo Insignia started on the left wing. Insignia always does well tracking back to help defend, but other than the penalty he struggled to contribute offensively, that wasn't for lack of effort, he just could not seem to develop any rhythm with his teammates. Matteo Politano started on the right wing, and in the middle, with Milik suspended and Mertens injured, Lozano started at striker, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. Okay, so there are 5 themes in this match that I want to talk about. Let's address the obvious one first, which was the penalty calls. On the first penalty, Alberto Grassi got inside of Mario Rui. As Grassi cut across Rui, who was chasing to get back into the play, Rui's knee made the slightest bit of contact with Grassi's calf. As soon as he felt the contact, Grassi went to ground and the penalty was given. Like most people, I thought this was a really soft call. Vard did look at it, but the decision was upheld. Very rarely is a call like that reversed. From what I've seen from the officials, so long as there is contact, as slight as it may be, That call will not be changed. I'm not saying that's right, but that is what happens. Interestingly, after the match, Gattuso told the zone that the second one needs to be looked at again. He didn't say anything about the first one, almost implying that he didn't disagree with the call. While everyone is focusing on the terrible call, no one seems to be talking about how this play developed. Whenever I reveal a goal that Napoli have conceded, what I always do is rewind about 30 seconds before the goal to see what led to it. This play started with Giuseppe Petzella playing a long ball over the top to Yasmin Kurtic on the left wing. Maximovic got to the ball before Kurtic but played a wayward pass. He intended to pass to Kulibali but the pass was far too heavy and ended up around the penalty spot. Alex Meret had to rush off his line to clear the ball so instead of controlling the play, Napoli conceded possession cheaply. Two passes later the penalty was given. Also while you may feel like Mario Rui was hard done by on this call... He was also largely responsible for how this play developed. Rui tried to slide tackle Celigardi on the right wing and completely missed. That slide tackle took him out of position and left him on the wrong side of Alberto Grassi, which then led to the contact when he tried to get back inside. The second penalty of the match was awarded to Napoli after Grassi blocked Fabian's shot. Initially, Napoli were given a free kick for handball, but VAR reviewed the play and determined that the ball struck Grassi's arm inside the box, so the penalty was awarded. This was very similar to the penalty awarded to Juventus against Lazio when VAR determined that Bastos handled the ball in the box. Lorenzo Insigne squared off against his paisan Luigi Seppe. Both were born in Napoli, of course. Insigne calmly placed his shot in the corner to level the scoreline. The third penalty was easily the most offensive decision of the three, especially when you consider that VAR reviewed this one as well. On the replay, you could see quite clearly that Kulusevsky threw his body in front of Koulibaly before the contact occurred and after he made a poor touch trying to cut into the box. Yes, there was contact, but how do you avoid making contact with a player that is suddenly falling in front of you? Between playing with your arms behind your back and having to avoid making any kind of contact in the area, in what's supposed to be a contact sport, I honestly don't know how players can defend in Serie A anymore. That said, again, if you rewind 30 seconds prior to the decision, you see that this situation could have been avoided. Two things happened on this play. First... Mario Rui failed to clear the ball off the sepet goal kick. He gets on top of the ball a bit, so instead of clearing safely, he smacks the ball right into Mateo Darmian. Inglese retrieved the ball, played it back to Darmian, and he sprung Kulusevski on the wing, which led to the penalty. The other thing that happened is Kulibali tried and failed to nudge Kulusevski off the ball. While you can hate on Kulusevski for the dive, he did well to keep running after the nudge, and more importantly, got inside of Koulibaly. Kulusevsky took the penalty as well to win the match for Parma. Now, while the penalty calls were both quite soft, I think most Napoli fans would agree that this was not a great performance from the Partanope, so let's talk about that. Napoli's most glaring deficiency in this match was a true number 9. With Milik suspended and Mertens injured, Gattuso was forced to play Lozano at striker. Lozano was a natural winger and you could see that he looked out of place. He often leaked out to the wings where he's more comfortable. Like line, he was just not on the same page with his wingers. He often went to ground in the hopes of getting a call, but they never came. Once again, Lozano is struggling to play the style of play that Gattuso wants. Gattuso expects his forwards to help defend, which Lozano did do, but then he lacked the energy in the attack. There were moments where you'd see him walking during Napoli's buildup, and because he didn't move into space, the play naturally moved away from him. Some attacking players are just not suited for this style of play. We saw something similar with Paulo Dybala under Allegri, where Allegri wanted him to track back, and he did, but as a result he didn't have enough juice to be as effective in the final third. Despite being nearly 10 years older, Mertens tracks back as far as his own box, yet is always moving, always looking to open up, and he's in such good shape, despite his age, that when he does get the ball, he's always a threat to score. Gattuso recognized that Lozano wasn't working at striker so he did try a few other options but in every case a natural winger was playing striker. Just before the break Gattuso moved Lozano to the wing and Politano in the middle but that didn't really change anything. At times we saw Insignia in the middle but I don't think that was planned as much as it was Insignia drifting along the front line like he likes to do. And then when Gattuso brought Emin Yunus in he played in that striker role as well. So it's no surprise to me that Napoli struggled to score and that's why we thought they would only score one goal. In this match, Napoli's attack certainly was not helped by the quality of their passing, which was really poor in this match, especially in the first half. Time and time again, Napoli killed their own momentum going forward by conceding possession with wayward passes. In the 15th minute, Diego Demme played a wayward pass that was intercepted by Caprari, which ended Napoli's build-up. Alain made a number of poor passes, resulting in turnovers as well. Other times, Napoli's poor passing led to scoring opportunities for Parma. In the 13th minute Insigne tried to play a spinning pass to Fabian inside his own half, but he overhit it. Caprari intercepted, squared to Brugman, he picked out Siligardi, and Siligardi got a decent shot off, but it went over the bar. Later in the half, line played a pass back that was intended for Maksimovic, but again the accuracy was lacking. Karamo got to the ball first, dribbled past Meret, and then played it back to Siligardi, but his shot was cleared off the line by Di Lorenzo. And just before the break, Maximovich played a pass that I think was intended for Koulibaly, but he put too much on it, so Meret had to slide out to clear the ball, conceding possession too cheaply, and that led to that first penalty. The other criticism I have about Napoli's attack is they need to be more clinical in their finishing. They had opportunities from point-blank range at the very start of the match and at the very end of the match, but didn't take either of them. In the fourth minute, Politano had an excellent chance to score his second in two matches after a nice little interplay between Mario Rui, Alan, and Insigne, but he shot straight at Musso. He did shoot with his weaker right foot, but you have to do better there. Then in the 95th minute, after yet another nice build-up, this time between Zielinski, Insigne, and Calejón, and Yunus skied his shot from point-blank range over the bar. Again, from that range, you need to at least test the keeper. Fabian, Insigne, and Calejón all had shots missed the target as well. The final criticism I have is on the defensive side of the ball. All season long, Napoli have struggled to defend the counterattack. Parma looked like they watched the Udinese match and realized that the way to beat this club is to sit back and crowd your own half. In Parma's case, they crowded their own third. Oftentimes, they had 9 men within 35-40 to yards of their own goal, with only Caprari up top pressuring Napoli's defenders. And once again, it worked. Napoli really struggled to create opportunities. So that's our review of Napoli Parma. Unfortunately, even if Napoli were hard done by with the penalty calls, there weren't really too many positives to take from this match. The good thing about the compressed schedule is that players don't really have time to dwell on their poor play. They have Sassuolo up next on Saturday, and we'll preview that match in Part 4. So we'll close the pod with a preview of Napoli's match on Saturday against Sassuolo. We already reviewed Sassuolo's most recent match in part 1 so this preview will be a bit shorter than usual. It's hard to take too much away from the Milan match as Sassuolo played the entire second half down a man after Burabia picked up that second yellow. But what we know about Sassuolo from their previous matches is they play a very free flowing game. We've described them as being the next Atalanta because they like to get forward and while they have a potent attack they also expose themselves on the defensive end. One thing that is cause for concern for me is that Sassuolo press high and we've seen how that's created problems for Napoli when they try to play the ball out from the back. So let's get to the starting lineups. Sassuolo's lineup is difficult to project because it depends on the formation that Zerbi employs and lately the Zerbi has been playing with different formations. For the most part Sassuolo has lined up in a 4-2-3-1 but against Caliudi the Zerbi used a 4-3-3 and against Milan he used a 4-2-2. Sassuolo drew to Cali and lost to Milan so the experiment didn't go too well and I expect Sassuolo to go back to the 4-2-3-1. So with that, though we've seen Gianluca Pegolo make the occasional appearance, we should see Andrea Consigli start in goal. At the back, the Derby has rotated quite a bit. Mert Muldur has been the preferred option at right back with Jeremy Tolian continuing to nurse a sore hip. Giorgios Curiacopoulos and Rogerio have mostly alternated starts since the restart, but Rogerio has started the last two matches, so I expect Curiacopoulos to start this one. At centre-back, I expect Marlin to start over Vlad Krishis, who's currently on loan at Sassuolo from Napoli, and I think Federico Peluso will start over Gianmarco Ferrari. Mehdi Burabia picked up two yellows against Milan, so if Sassuolo use the 4-2-3-1, then Francesco Magnanelli and Manuel Locatelli will play as the holding midfielders. Immediately in front of them, the most likely trio is Lucas Harazlin on the left, Philip Juricic in the middle and Domenico Berardi on the right. As I mentioned earlier, Boga was removed from the Milan match which seemed to be for disciplinary reasons, but the latest reports suggest that he did in fact pick up a knock and will not be fit for this match. That's really unfortunate because I love watching him play. Finally, the striker will be Francesco Caputo. For Napoli, David Ospina was not in the squad for the Parma match, so I'm going to go with Alex Meret to start. At the back, I'm going to stick with my three-man center-back theory, which would mean Maximovic and Manolas start this time, but admittedly, I'm not terribly confident about that. We could very well see Koulibaly and Manolas instead. I thought the Lorenzo was one of the few bright spots in the Parma match, so I think he will start again at right wing. Mario Rui, on the other hand, wasn't great, so I think we'll see El Cid Kusai on the left. In the midfield, I think Lobotka will start at Regista as he continues to earn more playing time and I think Zielinski will return in front of Lobotka alongside Fabian. I doubt Alan will get another start after that performance against Parma, though I do think Elmes has an outside chance of starting over Fabian. Up top, Insigne will start on the left. Arkaduj Milik returns from suspension and he should start as the striker while Mertens continues to recover from his injury, and it's Jose Calejón's turn to start on the right wing. The betting odds for this match are nearly identical to the odds for the Parma match. Napoli are nearly 1-2 favourites, Sassuolo are 4.5 to 1 underdogs and the draw pays 3.5 to 1. For my prediction, even though Napoli have conceded at least 1 goal in 9 consecutive matches, I'm going to take Napoli to win this match 2-0 on goals from Arkaduj Milik and Lorenzo Insigne. I think this Sassuolo side is exactly what the doctor ordered for Napoli. Napoli have struggled of late against sides that sit back and that's simply not how Sassuolo play. That means there will be more space on the field, which Napoli will definitely benefit from. Sassuolo's style of play also benefits Napoli on the defensive end, as Napoli struggle most to defend the counter-attack. Because Sassuolo don't sit back, they're far less likely to attack on the counter. Instead, they'll build up from the back, which means Napoli's front 6 will have plenty of time to get back to help defend. And that's something the Partenope do very well. Also, if Boga indeed does not play in this match, that will hurt Sassuolo's attack. He's such a dynamic player and was a huge part of Sassuolo's success immediately after the restart. For those reasons, I expect Napoli to keep a clean sheet, even though that's very difficult to achieve these days with how often and how easily penalties are awarded. As good as Sassuolo have been since the restart, they haven't won in 3 matches now, though I'm not putting too much weight into that. The draw to Juventus probably felt like a win, and the performances against Cagliari and Milan are hard to judge as Cagliari were shown a red in that match, and Sassuolo were shown a red in the Milan match. Finally, Napoli have only 3 competitive matches before their Champions League match against Barcelona, so it will be really important for Gattuso and for the players' mentality to finish the season with some wins. So that's my preview of Napoli vs. Sassuolo. That will also do it for episode 29. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends. And if you don't mind giving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform, we'd greatly appreciate it. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5 or you can find the podcast at Pod. You can also find my work at worldfootballindex.com. I just posted an article about Victor Osimen and why I think Napoli's investment in him is a calculated risk. We'll talk to you again after the Sassuolo match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Say, I adoro, tu know. I know. I
1: know.
0: I know. I I
1: Podcast Network.